Flip Folder app is revolutionizing musical ensembles across the country using state-of-the-art connectivity technology. Visit flipfolderapp.com to see how your ensemble can improve efficiency in rehearsals and performances, save time and money, and improve musicianship. Hello and welcome to Episode 3 of College Band Radio Season 3, brought to you by College Marching, sponsored by Flip Folder App. We have a great episode in store for you today, all about the process of putting together a band show. First, Jason and Alex chatted with Associate Professor of Music at Purdue University, Matt Conaway, about arranging for a band. Then, we throw it over to Savannah and Madeline, who spoke with Assistant Director of the Ohio University Marching 110, Joshua Boyer. But before we get into that, just a reminder to go and follow us on all of our social medias. Make sure you're following us at College Band Radio on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, as well as following us on Twitter at College Band RDO, because as you've heard us say a million times, radio was one letter too long. Plus, we now have a website, www.collegebandradio.com, where you can find all of that info in case you forget. From there, you can also check out more information about us and our sponsor. That's also a great place to go and find our merch store, where you can find everything you need to stay comfortable and stylish this season. And don't forget to tune in for our College Band Radio live shows. So make sure you're following us on social media so you can stay up to date with everything you need to catch those. But now that that's all out of the way, let's get into the show. And we're back on this latest episode of College Band Radio. Uh, so in this episode, we're going to be talking about, I guess, the art uh, of music arranging and the process, all that stuff, what goes into it. And with us today, Jason knows this person very well. Uh, we have Matt Conaway, who is a music arranger himself and is also the associate professor of bands at Purdue University. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to come on. How are you? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me. How are you guys doing? Can't complain. Can't complain Managing. at all. we're we're 48 hours from kickoff here so i get it (laughs) it's an exciting it's an exciting time definitely around around uh around colleges around the country when it comes to the football season starting but uh so we uh have you on today to talk about music arranging and obviously you have quite a bit of experience in that so i wanted to start off with how did you first get interested in it and how has your journey been uh since then Sure thing. I mean, I was doing uh, composing and I guess more transcribing from about middle school on. Got a lot of experience there just because it was interesting to me. I was in piano lessons and I was always trying to take down whatever I was either hearing on the radio or uh, of all things, video games kind of got me going into it. I think it was I was going through school during the original NES era. So like the Zelda series, Mega Man series, that kind of stuff. I was always trying to transcribe that down and try to figure out how that would work just on solo piano. So I guess that's where the kind of the transcription bug started. Um, when I went to college, um, I, I went to school at Indiana University. I was in the Marching Hundred there all four years. And the director of athletic bands at the time, Professor Dave Woodley, did the majority of the arranging for the Marching Hundred. And I just started to pick up what about his music worked so well because it made the band sound great. And he was writing for a lot of other groups too. And uh, I asked for pointers and he handed me basically the arranging guide that I still kind of go with. Um, even now, you know, 25 years later, um, he gave me the first opportunities to hear my arrangements played with college groups, um, originally with the Big Red Basketball Band and then the Marching 100 my senior year. So that's kind of where it started. And it really had a, a lot of opportunity to develop as an undergrad. And then when did you uh, end up at Purdue 
uh, and how has that been since then? Okay, it's been tw uh, two stints at Purdue, actually. Right out of my undergrad in 2001, I came to the Purdue band as a graduate assistant. Um, it was at a point where I knew that someday I wanted to be a college band director. I just didn't know whether it was something I wanted to go the route immediately or do something else first. So 2001, 2002, I was with the Purdue band. I did some arrangements for them at that time. Then I took a high school position for 10 years at West Lafayette Junior Senior High School right here in town. But I continued to do occasional arrangements for Purdue uh, during that time. Then fall of 2012, I came back, this time as a, a member of the full-time faculty and um, I've at since that time, I've been the chief arranger for the Purdue All-American Marching Band. And not only that, but we've um, I'm sure many of our listeners have played one of your arrangements. Actually, I played one of your arrangements in high school and then I came here and I like I did the I made the connection. I was just kind of astounded. But <laughs> I guess how did you because you're involved with Hal Leonard, at least Correct. Hal Leonard. Yeah. How did like um, that happen? And like what, what is what's it, what's it like for them or working with? OK. Them? Uh, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. I started publishing with um, the CL Barnhouse Company on my original music and on arrangements of uh, public domain material or, or non-licensed material. Um, that was purely concert band on the publication side, but that's kind of where the publication career started. Um, getting started with Hal Leonard was, we'll just call it really coincidental and really lucky. Um, the senior vice president of instrumental production for Hal Leonard, his name is Paul Lavender. Um, he, he has two children who are Purdue graduates. They both marched in the All-American Marching Band. Um, I've known the family for years. And Paul sat on our band and orchestra advisory board. So he would attend football games occasionally. Um, he came to one game, maybe my second year at Purdue, and asked Professor Jay Gephardt, the director of bands here, um, who was writing all these arrangements that we were playing in the stands. And it turns out that all of them were either written by me or were written by another of my colleagues, Professor Ishbak Cox, who was at Purdue for several years. Um, so he went back home to Milwaukee and talked to Mike Sweeney, who is another longstanding name in the field. And soon enough, both Ishbak and I got emails from Mike Sweeney asking if we would contribute anything to the marching band catalog that year. So it was kind of, uh, at that point, it was kind of R&D. Right. You didn't know if these would work. Um, we hadn't written for publication on the marching band front before. And um, yeah, I think I did four charts that first year and Ishba did two or three and they all kind of worked. Uh, so over time, we started writing more and more of the catalog. But it was a classic case of right place, right time. And, uh, you know, that's that's half of the industry really is just getting really lucky. That's awesome. I didn't I had no idea that <laughs> that guy's kids played in the American band. That's kind of awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. His oldest son, I think was a trumpet player. And then the second son was a mellophone player. <laughs> yeah. What a great instrument. But um, I guess since you just mentioned that you started arranging and transcribing like back in middle school, has that process for like you changed like at all? Has it become, I don't want to say more tedious, but like, has it become it's probably become a little easier, I imagine, with all the experience that you have now. But do you still find that like same excitement that you did back in middle school? Well, there was no excitement in middle school. It was terror. It was like, how do I get from point A to B? Because I'll, I'll tell you my first arranging lesson in middle school. Um, I had been trying to come up with this stuff on my own and I had been, I was able to play it on piano, but I'd never written it down. So I went to my middle school band director and just asked him, you know, are there people out there who, who will do this for you? Could I play them something on piano and have them write down the notes? And he said, yeah, they, they exist, but they're really expensive. And, and he's not lying. That's expensive. Um, he said, but the, so why don't you just do it yourself? Well, how do I do that? So it's really simple. If you think you're playing a quarter note and a certain note, write it down as a quarter note. 
and then play back what you see and not what you think you are seeing. And if it matches what you have in your head, it's right. And if it's wrong, try again. It's, it sounds really simple, but the trial and error process is the only way you can do transcription if you don't have any kind of like lead sheet or chord structure to go from. So I just said, okay, well, that's the lesson. There it is. And it, that hasn't changed. I am faster at it now because I've done it longer. I've studied music for years and it, it just starts to come to you. And, you know, modern pop music, it's a whole lot easier. We've gone from five or six chord songs down to three chord songs. Um, or in a couple cases, um, you know, like Montero just came out. I love the song, but there are only two chords in the entire piece. So that job got a lot easier. <laughs> um, it, then other things that have helped it to um, access to recordings, YouTube, you know, performers don't get the royalties like they used to, but it sure makes my job a lot easier. And then um, the easy availability of sheet music. I do have access to a lot of the Hal Leonard catalog. So if I'm doing an arrangement for them, I can easily get my hands on an already packaged piano transcription that'll at least get me in the ballpark. And then I can listen in and, and do some nuance changes. Okay. Interesting. So I guess like that kind of leads into my next question of where do you, I guess now that, now that you're as experienced as you are and where do you begin? So like you hear a piece on the radio or, or something that you really like, and you're just like, I'm going to arrange that. So like, how does that whole process like start and begin? Yeah. that. That very first question is, I, will I think this makes, will, will I think this will make a good marching band chart? That's the really important one. Um, a song that is really lyrics driven without a lot of melodic content. I'm talking about a lot of stuff that's either pure rap or, or certain, uh, certain pieces in the hip hop genre. If the melody itself is maybe only a note or two range, but then you just have uh, the words are the main thing you're listening for that doesn't really translate well. Like you might be able to get a, like a 20 to 30 second loop out of something like that. Um, it was a two years ago. I think it was Mo Bamba. That's the perfect hook that you can just keep looping over and over again, but there's no melody. Like you're not going to get a two minute chart out of that. The words are what are, are what makes that piece extra interesting. So once I, I determine, does it have something that will connect? Um, is it at a tempo that is playable both on the field and in the stands? Um, if it's something that's like 72 beats a minute, well, that can just kind of lie down and, and be boring. It, you, you have to say, where's the interest going to be? Where's the, the quick learn? Um, then where do I go from there? At this point, I pretty much know how to get a 90 second to two minute arrangement. You know, you know, you have to have the melody somewhere. Probably you're only going to give one verse because the chorus is what everyone sings along to, what everyone remembers. Um, and then it's a matter of choosing your melodics. You know, the trumpets are going to carry everything in a marching band setting in, in, a, in a, the college sense, because if you're not amplifying instruments, the trumpets are your best bet to reach from one end of the stadium to the other. And then you I, I, I can go into a lot of detail on this one, but I don't want this to be a three day podcast. Um, <laughs> but in, in essence, the picking of the tune is dependent on is it music driven or lyrics driven? Is it a pulse that is danceable and or marchable? Is it a tune that people will know or should know and is it something where i can condense it to again about a minute and a half in length with a chorus that could be done in 30 seconds if needed that's that's the will i write it or not question okay now it's interesting you say that about the trumpets because i think anyone that has seen an arrangement of yours or especially any mellophone player who has played an arrangement of yours can always trust that it's going to be a relatively <laughs> fun part to play so I'm wondering, like, why, why do you 
I mean, I'm not complaining. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to complain. But why do you write such like, for lack of a better term, like banger parts for the mellophones? <laughs> My editor actually just sent me a YouTube comment on that. Um, I think the joke was, you know, a, a, a boy goes to his father and he says, <laughs> Dad, um, why, why is my sister's name Rose? And said, well, your mom wanted to name you for something that she absolutely loves. And he said, okay, thanks, Dad. And the dad says to the son, you're welcome, Mellophone. Like it was a reference question to something in my arrangements, like, you know, I, like as if I was the dad. Um, <laughs> I write good Mellophone parts and fun Mellophone parts because that is one of those instruments. There's only two things you can do with them, right? You can write them something that is fun and ripping, knowing that they can't project like trumpets. It just doesn't cut through. Or you bury them. I mean, I, I hate to put it like this, but bands either have really good mellophone players or really bad mellophone players. There's no in between. It just doesn't exist. Um, so I tend to write to the harder side. Um, I learned to love that particular sound of like the rips and runs kind of thing uh, based on mid 90s drum corps. Uh, my first experience with DCI was during the 1995 season. All right, there was a major competition called the Preview of Champions that went through just about 10 miles from where I grew up. And every top end core except the Blue Devils were at that contest. At that time, you had Madison just ripping. I mean, it was so cool. And then in that same year, though, I heard the cadets for the first time. I heard Jay Bocook's horn writing. And I couldn't believe that brass players could do that. Standing still or moving, I couldn't believe what was going on. And I started really listening into it. I'm like, God, it's just scales. That's it. It's scales and lungs. So if you let, if you combine those things, just say, all right, play loud, keep everything on a scale pattern or keep everything on rips. It's a great sound. It's a thrilling sound to the listener and it keeps the players really engaged. So it started then. If anyone finds any of my mellophone parts too tough, blame Jay Bocook. I learned how to do it from him. Um, you know, it's kind of my tribute from afar. I've only met him once. Uh, but that's, that's where it came from. I just love the sound. I think the mellophone is one of the most versatile accompanying instruments that you have in the marching band. So I prefer the sound of exploiting it whenever I can. I, I think the term I often use is weaponize. <laughs> that's definitely for sure. Right, Alex, you got a question? Yeah, so... I was curious. So obviously we've talked about how you decide on a song um, and then, you know, from there figure out what parts work and what parts don't work. So what's the actual transcribing writing process like for you? How long does that usually take? Um, how do you do different parts? Like, do you group different um, instrumental sections together that are, I guess, similar parts or just, uh, in as simple of terms for you, or just as simple as you can describe it, um, how would you say that kind of goes? Yeah, I'll do my best on that one. Um, <laughs> the, the thing is, it, if I'm starting with an existing piano reduction, if that's available to me, I just start on paper exclusively. If I have to transcribe it first, um, it's one phrase at a time. I, I take down the melody, I take down the bass line, and then just write out chord changes. But it doesn't go right into the full arrangement right away. Um, on the paper, piano version or reduction, whatever I transcribe, um, I just go through and ink it up. And I just say, okay, this seems like this is a phrase where I would, I think trombone would be the good melodic instrument here. 
Maybe mellophone is the melodic instrument and, and a certain phrase. Maybe the trumpet is the lead instrument. Those to me are the big three when I'm writing for a college marching band. It's a different process for publication. Um, most high school bands are a little bit uh, a little bit more rich in the woodwind department than most college bands, at least within the Big Ten where I do most of my writing. Um, so I go through and I determine who's got the melody. You always know the tubas are going to have the bass line. Um, depending on who has the melody, that tells me what I can do with the other voices. For example, if the trombones have melody, I can't really have a super thick act activity going on in the trumpets and horns because from a volume standpoint, the trombones won't have a prayer of being heard. So I have to write them either really sparsely rhythmically or leave them out altogether. Um, baritone usually can double or harmonize trombone as we go through that. Um, usually I do that at the verse because you're not going to get all your volume there. Um, develop like a bridge section. To me, that's always like a great time for the mellophones alto range um, to have some melodic area. You can thicken up the chords in the low brass. Trumpets can do a lot of stuff here as long as they're playing low and quiet. Um, when the trumpets have the tune, that's when I know I can go pretty full force. Um, that's usually when the accompaniment rhythm becomes a little bit bigger, uh, more whole notes and half notes so we get more sustained power. Um, that's when the mellophones can start to take their uh, their scalar adventures or arpeggios, whatever it happens to be. Um, woodwinds tend to be the last thing I write when I'm writing for a, a Big Ten style band because it takes a lot for the woodwind sound to carry without brass support. It's not impossible. And I actually just wrapped up an arrangement yesterday that we're going to start learning next week where the woodwinds actually provide incredible important, incredibly important support because we're backing a vocalist. Um, so, you know, those are just some of the, the voicings where I go through, but I sketch that all out on paper so that I try to shift it up so that we don't have like 16 measures in a row of exactly the same texture. Um, you try to change some of that up a little bit as in the charts, just so it's not just like trumpet power from beginning to end. Um, so I, I sketch it all out there. And then when I go to finale and start to notate it out, um, I basically get the melody in first, get the bass line in next, and then fill in the gaps in the middle. Um, I write dummy drum parts. I do not write my own drumline parts. So I put in a sketch that just has the rhythmic vibe that I'm going for. And then if it's a Purdue arrangement, I pass it off to Dr. Pam Nave, our percussion director. And if it's a Hal Leonard publication arrangement, I pass it off to Jack Holt, who does my percussion parts for that group. Um, the treatment of woodwinds, again, that's a, it's, you have to be careful with the college band. If you have the whole woodwind section playing in unison, that is an audible element on its own. But as soon as you start to have picks and clarinets doing one thing and saxophones doing something different, that voice is not enough to carry the field, even if they're down front. So I tend to do a lot of standard doublings. Picks and clarinets will tend to stay with trumpets. Um, alto saxes tend to stay with mellophones. Tenor saxes tend to stay with trombones and baritones, but they also can go mellophone range. Tenor saxes is also one of those really uh, versatile instruments because down low, you've got real projection power. And up high, you have really good capability of blending. So, you know, you can do a lot with that. To me, I actually like using tenor sax to double the tuba at the octave because it gives a little more zip to the sound. That is uh, a lot of arrangers don't use that, but I just I like low tenor saxophone to, to really help that out. So that's kind of where I go. The paper first and then and then on to the uh, and then finale. That's so interesting to hear about, like, the different um, like pairings they use for instruments, especially because recently, Alex, we had a rehearsal where one of our other directors, Dr. Sweet, talked about like what each of our each of our jobs were as like instrument families. And he gave us like he said, like brass, obviously you guys 
are the power of the band. Like the woodwinds, like Sag says, you guys are not going to outplay at least volume wise, like a mellophone, but you guys add like the color underneath it and like all the extra stuff that is, and I just thought that like the fact that those two things like lined up, which is so, was so perfect and like well-planned, even though it wasn't planned at all. It was awesome. <laughs> but to, to drive away from the, I guess, technical aspects a little bit, what do you think is, I guess, one or two of some of your favorite arrangements that you've ever done and also some of your least favorite arrangements that you've ever done? Okay, I'll start with least favorite. Let's get the negative out of the way first. <laughs> um, sometimes with Hal Leonard, I'm asked to do arrangements not because they're going to be like glorious pieces of music necessarily, but Hal Leonard acquired the copyrights. And as part of the acquisition of those copyrights, we wanted to make sure there were um, arrangements available for certain songs in, uh, in a variety of settings. So the marching band, the jazz band, the concert band side of things. Um, I won't give away the particular piece I'm thinking of um, just because I don't want to you know, poison the well on that one. But there was one arrangement that I had to do. The arrangement itself turned out fine. I just didn't love the song. Um, but it was one of those like, hey, we should probably get an arrangement of this out there. Like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I think, uh, you know, I could look up the exact number, but I think in the course of the last several years, it has maybe sold 30 copies. And again, oh, wow. I, stand, I stand behind the arrangement. It's a good arrangement, but it's a song that nobody knows, a group that nobody knows. And it's just a really good song in a, uh, in a setting. And, and the song also is like 35 years old. So there wasn't a ton of interest in that. So when you get one that's a dog, you kind of go, oh, well, okay, I'll, I'll take this one for the team. That's fine. Um, I'll, I'm glad to help. They've been good to me. So I'll help <laughs> out. Um, favorite arrangements. I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to tell you three. One, the first one really quick is one the Purdue band did three years ago. Um, it was the night we played Ohio State. And um, Aretha Franklin had passed away, I think, during band camp. We got together as a staff and said, you know, we don't really have a fully fleshed out concept for this major game against Ohio State, but you're talking about the just an absolute queen in the music world. I mean, I grew up in Detroit. I, I have driven by Aretha Franklin's home. Like I, there's a, there's a part of that in me. So I, I pitched this to the staff, like, can we do an Aretha tribute? And we had a guest vocalist um, who uh, in, in North Central High School graduate. Uh, she used to work at Purdue and now she's a pastor up in Detroit and, she, and her voice is dynamite. Her name's Dr. Tawana Harris. And I did an arrangement of Natural Woman with her as the solo vocalist. And to do this at a sold out football game under the lights, I'll throw this out there. We were winning the game pretty solidly at that point. It was one of the best games that in Purdue history. It's like 49-20, right? Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, that one. And the atmosphere was completely electric and she owned that song. And I have never written the band louder than I did that night. That's the loudest thing I've ever written in my life. And the band went over the top. I, I was sitting in the press box. And I couldn't believe what I was, what I was hearing. Jason, were you in the band at that point? I was, was I was on the field too. <laughs> yeah. So you were, uh, you were one of the people sacrificing a lung for the sake of, of our <laughs> the tribute. Um, then the other two that are favorite are both, that came from the Hal Leonard side of the operation. And they were both pieces where we acquired copyrights and I was asked to do the arrangements. One of them, uh, we picked up some music from the Civilization video game series, um, the music of Christopher Tin. And I found that I was gonna do the, the uh, grade four marching arrangements 
of both Baba Yetu, which was his Grammy award-winning song, the first piece of video game music ever to win a Grammy, and uh, Sonu di Valare, which was the theme for Civilization VI, which is a really uplifting, um, powerful piece. The lyrics were all based on, on Da Vinci's writings about flight. So to get an opportunity to do that and interact with Christopher Tin on how to take his you know, orchestral and choral music and throw it out there in the marching field so he can understand what, what some the, like the muscle of the marching band really could be. That was a cool experience. Um, but the all-time favorite experience came when I was asked to do the arrangements for um, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Um, I got a call from my editor and I was working up at my percussion writers high school. Mike calls and he says, all right, are you alone right now? I said, well, no, I'm at Jack's high school, but that's, that's about it. He's here with me. I said, good, I can tell you this. We just got the rights to do all the Star Wars music arrangements. Um, so are you on board to do, three, uh, do, do a three-chart show on Music from Force Awakens? Went, uh, yeah, I'm happy to do this. He sent in three emails, three separate email accounts, a full set of scores to the soundtrack unpublished the actual recorded soundtrack without the track names it just was track one track two track three this is three weeks before the movie came out by the way and then a separate email separate account again that described what the tracks were a very very limited plot synopsis and description of which musical themes could not be paired with other musical themes because of plot elements in that movie and beyond I had to sign an I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement that I wouldn't talk about anything until the movie came out and that I wouldn't share those materials, the scores or any of that, no matter what. Um, and th this was Disney contracts, not Hal Leonard contracts. And then he said, and by the way, Mr. Williams will have to approve your arrangements before they go to print. <laughs> and I'm going. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yes. Yes, please. Let's let's do this. And I've never sweat more getting these arrangements done. I probably spent three times as much time on each of those than everything else I did the entire season. Uh, totally worth it. The music's amazing from that entire thing. And I ended up getting music from the next two movies as well. Um, Mr. Williams didn't hate what I did, I guess. I, I, I never got to interact with him. Um, I did get one note that some of my harmonies in the first one were too adventurous for him. So I cleaned that up before I did anything else. And we are, we're good. He still let me write the rest of them. So that's my favorite from an experience, probably above the others. But, you know, again, the Civilization music, I love. I played all those games, so I, I knew it well already. And, you know, writing an Aretha show. That's, that's awesome. I, that show is still today one of my favorite shows that I've ever done here. And the one we're about to do, the one we're about to do in three weeks might be in that same category. Tuan is coming back and singing with us again. I'm a big fan of this week's show. Like I love the um I'm a big fan. Alex knows this. I'm a big fan of like other schools fight songs. I listen to them all the time just for the fun of it. So <laughs> well, like, we've got five minutes of that for you. <laughs> so hearing that we Saturday. were doing like a Big Ten medley, like when um when our student leaders were in the room, Sophia was like, Oh my god, Jason's gonna flip when he hears about this. And I flipped <laughs> and I still like play all those songs with like a huge smile. Even even the IU one, I just have to play it, but it's a it's good a big song. Smile. You know, the big the Big Ten is home of the best fight songs out there. You know, I I just love this. Sorry, no offense to anyone listening <laughs> from anywhere other than the Big Ten, but I'm biased. I grew up in Big Ten country. Um, I I love what the Big Ten songs bring to the table here. 
And again, we're, we're covering all of them. We're playing half of every fight song in the Big Ten in sequence. Amen. All right. So last question that we always ask everybody. Uh, kind of similar to the last question, but what has been your favorite show to have either marched or seen? Like favorite uh, marching show to have marched or seen? Um, I'm going to go back to that DCI thing again. And I'm going to say um, the Madison Scouts field show in 1995. This was, I forget the, the, exact, uh, the exact text, but it was something to the effect of, I think, a, day, a scene in the life of a bullfighter or something like that. It was all Latin fire from beginning to end. Um, look it up. You'll find it. Um, it's, it. It was, without question, my favorite experience on anything in the marching arts just to have that level of power hit you and the way everything was scored, the way everything was staged. Uh, you know, I know I'm talking about something that's, you know, what, almost 30 years in the past at this point. Um, and I know they took out, they played elements of that from that show or similar concepts, even this past summer. So you you got a taste from it. If you followed any of their work, um, that's probably my all time favorite experience as somebody listening to it. Um, as far as being involved in the production of it or as a performer, boy, uh, that Aretha Franklin show is a strong one. Um, we did a show maybe my second or third year at Purdue called Hammer Down Cancer. It was a, a cancer survivor tribute that I thought was just really powerful and really tastefully done. Um, and then mm, there's too many. <laughs> After, after a decade with a college marching band doing seven half times a year, there's just so many, um, there's so many that could win that award for me. Mm -hmm. Well, um, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of fantastic shows that I'm sure that you've uh, scored and I'm sure there are plenty more in the future that are going to happen, but Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talking with us. We really, really appreciate it and you giving uh, the listeners and, and us just an inside look, a closer look at, at what it's like to arrange music. It's absolutely awesome. Thank you so much again. And for everyone listening, uh, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back on this latest episode of College Band Radio. Hi, everyone. It's Savannah and Hannah here with this week's Five Minute Tailgate segment. For this week's episode, which is all about what goes into putting together a show, we wanted to share with you some of our tips and tricks for what we use when we're trying to memorize our music and our drill. I think definitely for me, memorizing things is always the hardest part every single year. I always joke about how I have such a bad memory, but something that's definitely helped me uh, kind of fit everything together and get everything in my brain is definitely writing down the moves that I'm doing in the drill in my music. So whether you're using an app like Flip Folder app or paper music, it's always awesome to have a pencil, something to write with. And then say you're doing a 16 count push forward to the sideline from measures one through four, just marking that in there and writing down like, hey, I'm going forward for measures one through four in whatever shorthand works for you, whatever's easiest for you to understand later. I think that's definitely a great idea. That always helps me. Um, I know some of my friends also really like to color code stuff. So maybe like anytime you're doing a left slide, they'll mark it with a yellow highlighter or blue highlighter or something and then change it each time. I'd say definitely something else that's helped me with memorizing music is listening to the music. 
whether that's the marching band arrangement of the song, if it exists, or say it's a pop song, it's new for 2021, or maybe it's a custom arrangement, so there isn't a recording of it. Listening to the original version of the song always really helps me kind of pick out what my part is going to be, and it helps me make sense of everything I'm hearing when we're actually on the field. So for example, we're doing music from Star Trek this year, and we don't have a recording of it because it's a custom arrangement for us. So I've been listening to the movie score, so I get a feel for all the different parts. And maybe uh, the melody line is a vocal part or something like that in the original version, and it got moved to the trumpet line or the flute line. Regardless of where it ended up, it just helps me put it together and really start identifying stuff in other parts on the field, and it helps me better understand my part and what my rhythms are going to be. Yeah, I find it so helpful when we're able to rehearse with recordings as well, because then Mm -hmm. you can kind of map it all out in your head so that you can even like close your eyes and see exactly where you're supposed to go once you're kind of off looking at the drill charts. But when, for me, when like we're starting out with drill charts and I have to remember my number, what I'll do is I always have a highlighter on me. And you know, there's so many dots on your page, specifically if you're using paper. Um, So whatever highlighter you like, highlight your dot on every single page, where you're going, where you've been, so you can keep track of it. Um, I find myself trying to devote a lot of time to music memorization. So what I like to do is called chunking. So you can take a phrase or a line or however much of the music you feel comfortable with and then kind of try and workshop that portion specifically. So when you get the smaller portions, then you can piece them all together, and then you'll have the whole thing ready and all in your brain for you to march in the show. Um, I remember when I was in high school, uh, I know for halftime and pregame, your numbers change sometimes, but I found it really fun and helpful for us to have these little, hello, my name is, little name tags, and we would wear them on our shirts, and it had our number on it just in case you know you would forget or people around you would be like are you are you piccolo one are you flute three so they could see so when you're trying to dress the diagonal or the curve you'd always know and you can kind of get your reference points really clear um so yeah that was really fun and i would definitely recommend that for anybody listening if you're trying to look for a little hack there to keep it a little bit more organized um anything else No, I think the little name tag idea is super cute, and that's not something I ever would have thought of, but I love it. (laughs) So I'm learning something new today. (laughs) Well, I guess that's all from us. We're running out of time for this week's 5-Minute Tailgate. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this, and make sure you stay tuned for the following segment. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to this segment of College Band Radio. Today, Madeline and I are joined by Josh Boyer from Ohio University to talk more about drill writing and the process that goes behind that. So um, would you like to introduce yourself and kind of talk about what you do? Sure. My name uh, she says, is Josh Boyer. And I'm the assistant uh, director of athletic marching bands here at Ohio University. And this is my sixth year in this position with Ohio University. Um, and I write uh, a good amount, if not all the drill, but a good amount of the drill here that we do at OU. Awesome. So um, I've heard that you have experience writing drill for both college marching bands and DCI. Uh, So what are those two processes like individually? Is there anything that distinguishes them or just if you could talk about kind of what goes into both of those 
if they're different, that would be really cool. Sure. Yeah, there's definitely a, a very different dynamic in, in the different styles of drill riding. Um, and although I actually haven't written for DCI necessarily, I mean, DCI groups, but a lot of more competitive a BOA, you know, state competition kind of marching bands. Um, so along the lines, right? But still a significant difference between a college marching band for the most part and for uh, a, a competitive kind of style marching band of like DCI or even a high school um, circuit would be. Um, so very different dynamic as far as um, how things are set up a lot of times. Um, you know, the competitive world works in a world where they do one show a year. Um, so the, the drills are often more complex. Um, and more more involved a lot of times. College bands work in a world of doing five shows a year or more. Um, and some high school bands, of course, do that as well. Um, so it's a very different dynamic on how we approach drill riding for those different groups, how we, how we teach, rehearse, you know, plan for those shows, and, and what goes into the planning process is, is significantly different between the two kind of uh, drills. On average, about how long does it take you to write drill for an entire show? Good question. And it, it does definitely depends on the type of band and the size of band, of course. Um, for an entire show for our band here, um, it might take five or six hours to write an entire show uh, on our end uh, for me. Um, and it's, it's something I'm used to doing with our style, our specific style here, especially at Ohio. Um, but there are bands where an entire show, you know, a 10 or 12 minute halftime show will take me significantly longer. Um, if it's a little more complex with drill and there's a little bit more going into it than, than maybe we do here at OU. Um, so I would say average, you know, it might be eight to 10 hours in a show. Um, but it, it really can fluctuate with every band is unique and, and the size and, and how you're organizing the, the group on the field and, and all those different elements. So I don't know if there's one answer, but it can vary depending on the organization that you're writing for. I think this is really interesting to talk about because personally as a member of a band, you know, usually I just, I receive the drill charts and then I have to go where I'm supposed to go. And so oftentimes people don't think about kind of all the work that goes into it. So I know I'm curious about how you gain inspiration for what you want to put in the charts. Like how do you kind of decide what you want that to look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, for, for me, it comes from the music actually right away. When I listen to a song, and it can be, you know, anything from your a recent pop tune to some kind of you know, concert piece that's being performed on the field. Um, the music is what will inspire my visual element. And and the interesting thing about what we do as drill writers is there's a creative process, like hearing the music and thinking what would work drill-wise. And, and, you know, in our mind as drill writers is probably years and years of different drills that we've written over the years or things we've seen and, and you know the reality is there's very little out there that's going to be like earth-shattering brand new never forcing concepts right but the organization of those concepts is what will make each drill unique you know and so hearing the music and kind of thinking about okay this is the type of maneuver that seems like will fit this music you know whether or not it's it's a lyrical floating curvilinear form that's you know taking some time to flow or it's more you know, point to point, you know, uh, solid form kind of thing, block line kind of maneuver, the music will determine that a lot. And um, so, if, you know, going through that process and hearing it, and I think it, it's something, it's a skill that takes time for, for young band directors to learn too, and Joe Riders. Um, you know, those of us, when I, when I teach marching band methods, for example, and we listen to different songs and thoughts for marching band drill, I'll ask students, what do you what do you think about this music? What do you hear? What do you see? And they struggle with it because they haven't developed that kind of background and technique and knowing that, oh, this this type of music calls for this type of drill and this type of music calls for this type of drill, you know? So that creative process is definitely unique with it. Um, and then there's a the process of, of taking what's in here and putting it 
into the computer program, right? And and I don't know, I'm sure we'll talk about the, the charting process, the program that, that I use personally, um, Pyware 3D that I've used for many years, but that's a whole nother learning element to learn the program and, and taking what you want here and putting it on the screen, on the dots and on the pages and making it do what you want in order to be able to pass it off to the students then to learn and to execute on the field. So there's a multi-step process with this whole design process that, that takes takes some time to really grasp and understand and do really well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I do want to talk a bit more about that software you mentioned. Um, so when you do put those points in there, do you get to see the points move from one space to the other and see it all kind of be fluid? Or uh, yeah, I just would be interested in you talking about that a little bit more. Well, the program that I've used is called Pyware 3D. Uh, it's been around for a couple decades, if not a little bit more. And uh, it is a very, very powerful program um, to the point where, um, you know, what you get on the drill charts, you know, you just see the dots from dot to dot, page to page. But the program connects all those dots and, and connects them in a way that you can manipulate to do almost anything you want. Um, whether or not the, you know, first off, it smooths it out, right? So the, the, the formation and stuff will transfer from one to other and you can see the you know the maneuvers you know kind of ebb and flow and do whatever they're doing count to count but also like you can also do um, different styles of marching it has you know your, your traditional like kind of standard roll step kind of march you have high step you have crab step for percussion you know um, you can make the members face different direction on different counts and you can um, have all the instruments carry their own instruments right trombones and trumpets and tubas and everything else uh, flag members can carry flags they can toss them they can spin them they can do all these things um, you can have the field look and represent exactly what your field is on that you're performing for um, you can have the uniform designed out you know and graphically to look exactly like your band uniform so it's, it's an extremely powerful program that is a whole 3d rendering you know we've gone from uh, 25 years ago to having kind of a 2d field with little sticks on the field that might move around <laughs> and they kind of they go eh, 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 you know to, to this beautiful 3d rendering process that Pyware has now to make your shows look really really great and, and, and it's a great tool for us as well because as designers, we get to see exactly what that product's gonna look like before we ever ship it off to our directors to, to begin learning. And then they can send it to their students so they can see what it's supposed to look like before they even start learning drill two, right? So it's, it's a really powerful program. Um, and again, with that power comes a massive learning curve that takes years and years and years to really get a good firm understanding to where you can write a drill in a couple hours. You know, if you give it to a student teacher who's never done it before, it'll take them a month to write a two minute song, you know, just because it, it's, it just takes a long time to really grasp the program. But it is super, super powerful. I mean, it, but after 20 years of using it or so, 15 years, maybe a little more than that, it's, it's secondhand nature. It's like, you know, right. It's just like any computer program, checking an email, you know, for me. So um, <laughs> you, you learn a way around it. Yeah. Okay. I was actually going to ask you next when you began uh, learning to write drills. So you said that was 15 to 20 years. Yeah. So I started my first drill. Um, so the backstory with that was when I was a sophomore in school and, and I went to Ohio for undergrad and, and master's degree. So I did my undergraduate here. And when I was a sophomore, probably spring of my sophomore year, I had asked the director here, um, Dr. Richard Sook, um, I said, hey, I'm interested in learning, um, kind of getting the computer program that you use to write drill. I kind of want to play around, around with it. And, and I've always been somebody who's been into kind of computer programming and graphic design stuff. And that's kind of always been a side gig of mine is to do graphic kind of things, right? So at the time, he used a program um, called DrillQuest, which was a program, kind of a 1990s drill writing program. It was kind of a precursor to Pyware in a lot of ways, uh, but still kind of different. 
And uh, anyway, so he gave me this this program, which at the time it came on one of those three and a half uh, floppy disks. And um, I remember having to to get that on a computer and, and and learning how to use this program. And so I took it home for a week or whatever, kind of messed around with, learned how to ins and outs of the program. And then I came to him maybe a week later and said, "Hey, I want you to check out something I wrote." And it was just a little drill, you know, kind of squad based drill like we do here at OU. And and it spelled out this interlocking OU formation and whatever. And he's like, "Wow, this is this is good. You kind of figured out this program quickly, and you know, you kind of you obviously visually already have an idea what what works with what we do." And and he said, "Would you be interested in helping me rewrite our pregame show?" Um, and and I'm sure she doesn't even know this, but we used to <laughs> we used to only march 112 members in pregame. Um, it was a smaller mm-hmm. pregame block. The band, you know, really hadn't changed the pregame block in many in almost 40 years at that point. So it was a smaller pregame block, and the band was growing in size to where we would have kind of where we're at now, man. We have like 60, 70 yeah. alternates in pregame, <laughs> um, and and we but with 112 on the field, and then you know 70 on the sidelines with 180 in the band. So we we wanted to increase our our pregame presence, right? And this was right after Frank Solich came as our head coach. This is 2005, um, the spring of 2005. So we heard we had we're getting a new coach that fall, and we knew that it was a shot in the arm for Ohio Athletics. We thought, okay, we don't want to take this little 112 piece pep band basically to a bowl game and go against you know the the Troy State band, which has got 300 members in it, right? So we don't want to. We wanted to up our game a little bit for pregame. So, anyways, he asked me to rewrite pregame with him. <laughs> So I took the pregame we do today is the same pregame I wrote in 2005, um, just for more numbers. And, it, and it's, it's the same traditional drill. We just expanded from 112 to 160 in that block, made it work out and do all those kind of things. So that's what started my drill writing kind of career was rewriting our pregame show. And then that fall, I wrote my first halftime show. Um, we did a Bon Jovi show and I had the interlocking OU thing in there that I had kind of shown him as an example. And, and that's where it all kind of started for me. So that was about 16 years ago now. It was my first, my first, really first drill was ever I wrote was for a college band. Um, and then from there it went into doing a lot of high school bands and those kind of things. So that's kind of, that's where it all started for me. I definitely feel like as I've progressed, like through my music ed undergrad, I'm appreciating the work that goes into just like the basics of marching band so much more and it's just like I look at the drill sheets I'm like how did you come up with this I'm like aha what is this and then we finally execute it and then it's like you hear about like how how many hours get put into each drill and it's just like I have such like a more like I'm more appreciative of all the work that gets put into every aspect of it now just as I'm going through my degree yeah Mm -hmm. I think that's such a special and unique opportunity to have to be able to do drill as an undergrad, because I had never heard of that before um, until we actually had an interview in season two on one of our episodes. It was our division two and three spotlight episode where um, Emily Cranach, who is in the Central Washington University band, she said, you know, my student leadership position is writing drill. And they do one drill, like one show per season. And I, at that moment, I was like, this is a really very, good opportunity for people that want to explore their careers in doing band directing and and you know further that and get such an early head start on that so i think it's very cool that you were able to get that opportunity yeah and and it's something that we've been able to extend i think we've had a couple students since that point too uh, undergraduate students that have written some drills for us and and a lot of times it's a student who is in the marching band methods class you know that they show us their stuff it's like wow this is really good would you be interested in doing a show next year and you know so it's like their senior year or whatever um, and they're able to you know do a whole show or at least or at least you know um, 
do a show with us together, you know, and, and kind of collaborate on a show. Um, it's been a couple of years now, but it, it does happen, and it's a great it's great for us because you know we we want to show off our students, right? I mean, and show off the skill sets that they have. Um, and it, and it's definitely when you get one of those students that who's interested in doing it because of that learning curve is kind of steep with the program even like you get somebody who's already like on top of that curve and doing really well with it you're like this is somebody who's got potential to do this at the collegiate level someday or whatever you know and, and that's and it's got to start somewhere and and i'll say that that's one thing that dr sook here has always been very very good with was you know surrounding himself with people that and letting them those get have those opportunities whether it's drill or, or writing music and things like that arranging music you know those opportunities for those young students because that's that's how they get to blossom and kind of grow and become better as musicians or educators or whatever it may be um what is one of your favorite drills you've ever written Ooh, that's a good question um um, one, one of my favorites was we did a drill, it was 2012, I think. Uh, we did a tune called Motown Philly, um, and it was just a really cool tune, uh, first off, and that was, that was a lot of fun to write for. Um, and But the drill I wrote was, was intricate, it was interesting and unique for us. Um, it did some stuff that, that you know was kind of abnormal, I guess, for us a little bit. Still within our style, what we do here at OU, but was just unique in how we kind of proceeded with stuff. Um, there's that show. We did a collaboration show a few years ago. Dr. Lee and I kind of helped each other out with this one. Uh, we did a Bruno Mars show. We call it Bruno Mars 1.0. It was the first Bruno Mars <laughs> show we did. Um, and that show has become like the staple of when I, when I show what OU does, that's the show we use because it really mixes it all up. I mean, it has core in it. It has high step. It's got, it's got step two drills. It's got pivot drills. It's got a little bit of everything in it. And it's really good good music too. Sounds great. It's a night game. The atmosphere was good. It was against Marshall. So it was a really good rivalry game. <laughs> yeah. So all those different elements, you know, so that was probably one of my, one of my favorites too, just because the whole package was together. Um, but then probably I would say one of the most unique shows that I collaborated with was a production show we did one year uh, when it was the anniversary of Rocky. And we did this kind of Rocky collaboration where it was, it was a great show concept for us to do. Cause we're not a band that does like theme shows a ton i mean we, we kind of do them a little bit but to do like a, a rocky show that was a huge production and after we did the dance break that we did we did a whole marching thing afterwards um with this big company front it was really cool uh it was just again out of our normal you know Madeline, where we didn't finish in the dance and be done like we had yeah. another minute <laughs> of drill, drill. <laughs> yeah you know so that was unique and so that was a fun one too that we actually like collaborated on that one as well um that made that one happen so um, there's, there's been so many though, like it's hard sometimes to re even remember and then, Oh yeah. Remember that show and remember this show. And, um, you know, we, we try to always have, uh, you know, every show we hope is good and great and memorable and, and is a home run, but they're, they're not always that way. Of course we know. Well, I think that's all the questions that we have for you. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. This has been a very informative, very fun conversation. And, uh, for anybody listening, stay tuned for our rest of our segment. That's going to wrap it up over here. Once again, a huge thank you to Matt Conaway and Joshua Boyer for coming on and telling us all about how they take an idea and turn it into a band show. We also need to thank our friends over at Flipfolder app for their support. And of course, thank you for hanging out with us and listening to another great episode of College Band Radio. Next week, we'll be taking a break, so it's a great time to catch up on some of your favorite band shows. Tweet at us. Let us know what you're going to be watching. And then our next episode after that will be coming out on September 24th, we're going to be talking all about bands and pop culture, so you're not going to want to miss that one. But from all of us here at College Band Radio, 
you just want to say, have a nice week.